Hey, it's Michael, and I've got a question for you. What's more important in a healthy society than making conversation? Welcome to the follow-up question. I'm your host, Michael Ashford. Come with me on a journey as I explore how we communicate well. What we have been taught about communication and what has been modeled and incentivized through culture has left us in a place where we know how to exert our ideas and opinions and beliefs onto each other, but we miss the entire other half of conversation, the extraction. My aim with this show is to bring you perspectives and ways of looking at issues or topics that perhaps you haven't considered before, to teach you how to ask curious questions, how to seek understanding over certainty, how to listen and give space, so that ultimately you might become a better communicator. I'm a former journalist who believes everyone has a story to tell, and it's only when we ask questions and listen that we reveal what connects us as humans, our dreams, our desires, our experiences, our ideas, and what we stand for rather than what we are against. What is the point of conversation? Well, Michael, it's so that we can talk to each other, duh. Okay, yes, I get that, but let's keep digging here. I'm not talking about catching up with your friends on the weekend or chatting on the phone with your mom or dad. I'm wondering about those late in the day talks we have to have with an underperforming employee or a sit down with a friend who has hurt you and they don't even know it. What about those uncomfortable conversations? What's the point of them? Well, Fred Dust believes it's change. Fred is the author of the book, Making Conversation. And in this, well, conversation, Fred shares why creating change is an elemental component of the most valuable and creative method we have of communicating with each other. And here's the trickiest part, the best most productive, most creative conversations that actually solve problems often require the parties involved being individually open to change, while at the same time acknowledging that they're not trying to change anyone else in that moment. It's nuanced and perhaps a bit confusing, I know, but if you're like me, once you hear Fred explain it, you'll come away more optimistic about the possibilities. So to get you started, as you listen to my interview with Fred, ask yourself, what ideas do I have about creating conversation that I might need to consider changing? After reading your book, one thing that I was consumed with the thought of is this notion that you wrote about of conversation fatigue, that we're we're experiencing that quite often these days. Can you explain what that is for the listeners as we jump into the conversation here? Yeah, and Michael, I don't want to presume to speak for everybody, but I do feel that um, the the kinds of conversations we've been having to have over the last kind of, I'm going to say last decade, but let's say like the last six years, um, have become, I think, 
increasingly intense, the things that we have to grapple with, and often things that are established by the kind of relentlessness of the news hook um, that kind of like sets the tone for the ways that we're thinking, the ways our minds are working, um, has kind of created a real strain on the things that's actually the most important element of our life, which is conversation. And so, you know, it's really hard to kind of go into a conversation and grapple with the notion that you might find yourself dealing with a really difficult situation, one that we're not used to every day, um, just because of the way um, the news hook has set us up. So I'll give you an example. And Michael, um, I was on a call with a client not so long ago, and we started the conversation. And one of the things that we both said is like, you know, we're having this conversation in the wake of a school shooting. There was a school shooting the day before, which is something we've gotten, unfortunately, used to. And one of the things that we sort of decided is that we couldn't go into a conversation without kind of sort of pausing and sort of taking a moment of collective kind of reflection and mourning. I mean, the client was like, you wouldn't literally go into work if something like this happened, and it, but it's become so normalized that we do now. Um, and so I think it's that kind of thing. There's these hard things that come up daily for us that have made conversations feel more burdensome, more exhausting, like there's more work. And that shouldn't be the way conversations should feel. They should feel joyous and give us life and give us other things. So the whole book is set up to help remedy some of that. What is contributing to that feeling? Um, uh, you said the the ways that we're thinking. I'm gonna I'm gonna make an educated guess here, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or right, or provide more nuance. But do we know too much, Fred, that we can't control? I think so. Yeah, I, I feel that way. There's two things I think that are contributing. Yes. I mean, every morning you find out more stuff than you ever did before. And think about the things that are weighing on you. You have a war in Ukraine. You have whatever violence there is in the U.S. We have the fears about debt ceilings. There's all those sort of things. So literally the kinds of things that are encroaching on our lives constantly because of our um, maybe overly keen attention to what's happening in the news and media landscape is really is really hard for us. I will also say, and I'm I'm sorry, Michael, I'm going to place this a lot on the way that news present and presents things, um, is that we're confronted with, again and again, a fear of difference. I mean, I, I talk about this in the book, which is that by nature, difference makes us uncomfortable. That's even more the case now because that's been exacerbated in our minds. So one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is what I'm calling toxic politeness, which is this notion that We'll do anything to avoid hard conversations, but in fact, the politeness that we've kind of instilled into our cultures, into our communities, into our organizations means that we often can't talk about the things we really need to be talking about or make the decisions we need to be making. So, um, yeah, I think we, I think we, it's weird, Michael, I think it's an interesting way to put it. We might just know too much. It's interesting. It's an interesting way of putting it, that we're so polite because we don't want to have the hard conversations. I've never thought of it that way. Uh, for and, and it's so weird to think about the idea that politeness can be toxic, but it's like, you think, I mean, I've worked with organizations where they're like, we know we should make this decision, but we're not going to make it because the backlash is, we're too afraid of the backlash. So it's, it's a significant issue. Um, it's one that I've seen people really bumping up against, especially in this last year, it's really kind of come up quite a bit. Can you take me back a little bit, Fred? When did you first begin to f- have these feelings that our conversations weren't as, I'll say, productive as they should be? You, you mentioned communication is should be one of the most elemental, enjoyable things that we we have. When did you begin yeah, to feel, have yeah. those feelings that something is off? 
I feel like, um, and it, it actually has no, like, it has something to do with kind of the outcome of the 2016 elections, but it felt like everything that was leading up to the elections of that period, kind of, you, we felt like, I felt like there was a huge gap in what was happening in terms of conversation. I also will say that I had spent years before that working with government and philanthropy and large nonprofits for, focusing on kind of social change. And feeling like we were in these endless conversations that were not progressing the issues forward in the ways that we want. And so what's funny, Michael, is the original book proposal um, was actually a book about how we lost conversation in America. So it was literally all about, here's all the things that have led to our loss of the ability to have conversation. And little funny note is that when I sold the book and I was meeting with my publisher, she was like, the book's amazing. We're not, we're not going to touch it anything you want, except for your book at the proposals about how we lost conversation in America. And we need a book that's entirely about how to find it. And I was like, well, that's a really different book. And my publisher was like, I know, but it's the book we need. <laughs> and it's funny. She was right. It's what yeah. we need. It's what I needed is to kind of write about how to kind of refine it, not to kind of focus on how we lost it. So there is a there's some nuance to this that I noticed in the book, because as we've been talking here, we've been talking about toxic politeness and avoiding hard conversations. But you made the point and I'll just read this from your book that you said, while the rest of the world is telling you that making conversation is hard and that it's happening less and less, you actually are realizing in your research for the book that there are people having hard conversations. You said people are having hard conversations. They are committed to other people and opening the door to difference or for difference. Who are those people? What are their characteristics? What's the makeup of those people that, that cause them to be different from what I think the rest of the world is experiencing? You know, it's funny, Michael. Uh, there was a funny shift for me when I was writing the book. And I'll give you a little story, which is that when you're writing a book, everyone's like, especially on conversation, everyone's like, oh, you need to talk to this person or you need to meet my grandmother or you need to whatever. <laughs> and you get kind of really, you're like, oh, yeah, I want to be polite, but I really don't have time to talk to your grandmother and stuff like that. So I had a party here at the farm and somebody was like, you really need to meet my um, stepmother. And I was like, oh, but it was a friend. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And so I did a call with his stepmother and it turns out his stepmother had um, was in her 80s, very religious woman, and had a while back with her friends decided that they wanted to read Fifty Shades of Grey, which was the it was a book about bondage, um, mass bestseller at the time. But they were embarrassed to do it. They didn't want to read it on their own. They felt like that was weird. And, they, and so they created a little book group um, and they read Fifty Shades of Grey together and then they conversed about it and processed what happened in it. Um, and by the time I met with them, they had already moved on to like watching Deep Throat and like going to talk to prostitutes in their local communities to understand what the, what was going on. They'd kind of progressed through this really advanced journey in their understanding of sex and sexuality and whatever. So anyway, the story to make that short, story shorter is like that woman and her commitment to wanting to have that conversation became what I was most interested in everyday people who somehow did it and had the conversations that need to happen. And I would say the characteristics are different. Some are inward. Some are about curiosity. Some are about commitment. Um, some are kind of like about willingness and openness to change. One of the couple things that I feel like really happens though, are 
the people who are good at this are people who go into conversation not wanting to change somebody, not wanting to say, oh, I have an opinion that's going to shift it, but rather like I'm here for the conversation. And that's the big characteristic I saw in people who were like able to have hard conversations is they could come in and say like, I'm not really trying to change you. I'm just trying to learn more about you. And Michael, what's interesting, the other thing that I would say is where I see this playing out in really interesting ways right now are communities like mine. So I'm I'm in a small town in upstate New York, very politically, could be very politically divided, but we rely on each other. You know, it's like, so you go to the store and you have a half hour conversation with a person behind the counter because they're your community and you're here for each other. And so I think there's certain contexts where I'm seeing conversations flourish, often when people are really having to be committed to making sure that they're all going to be together and thrive um, in circumstances where that might not be the case. So so I think there's outward and inward things that, that, that lead to it. I love that perspective of, again, it's, it's, it's local. It's, it's within your grasp and within your reach. I, I love that perspective, Fred. You mentioned there three things. There's, there's a curiosity about them. There's a commitment and there's an openness to change or a willingness to change. Uh, but that you're not trying to force that change on others. I've been, exp- I want to get to change here in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. You, commitment. What does that mean? Commitment to what? It's, it's quite literally a commitment to the person that you're talking to. And so it's, and it's funny, this is a, it was a funny, weird revelation as I was writing the book, I was giving a lecture um, in, in the Bay area and somebody raised their hand and they're like, yeah, but what happens if like, I haven't even opened my mouth and that person already hates me, you know? And it's like, and so one of, one of the things I basically kind of realized is that you can't do anything unless you start with a commitment to saying, I'm here for Michael. I'm here for this conversation. It's, you know, and, and it, by the way, this conversation doesn't happen forever. It's, you know, an hour or 45 minutes and I can do that. I can be there for you and I can hold everything else. Somewhat, sometimes my values at bay um, while I'm here in this conversation with you. That, Michael is like, that's not a um, easy thing to do. That's a decision that we make when we decide that we want to commit and engage with people and the conversations that we're having together is you have to commit to the person. You have to commit to the conversation. Those are the things that are most important. So the whole first chapter of the book is actually about if you can't do it, don't. And by the way, I think it's great, Michael. In fact, I think if you can't commit, then don't, you know, it's like, and let somebody else have the conversation or don't go into the conversations where you're not responsible for the outcomes. Let somebody else do it. You know, I think that there's plenty of times where we overcommit to things that we're not really, we can't take on. So. I know, I know obviously the, the, the book gets into all of this, but is there a succinct way that you can explain how to make conversation when we have those three things, we have a curiosity, we have a commitment to a person, and we have a willingness or openness to have our mind changed, even if we're not necessarily like, <laughs> even if that doesn't feel great. Um, what is converse? Then how do we make conversation beyond that? Yeah, I mean, it's like, I actually believe that there are some things that are really basic um, that we sometimes forget to do, which I know this is going to sound dumb, Michael, but how often... We don't go into simple things like, what's your name? Or let me hear about what your day was like, or, or things like that. Like, So I'll, I'll give you a really funny example. Um, I live on a, in a rural community. Um, 
people hunt our property and I'm fine with that. We know the people who hunt our property. Um, but there was a day recently where, or not recently, about a year ago, where some a hunter and his son came onto my property who I didn't know. And I was like, well, I'm going to talk to him about it, at least telling me if he's going to come hunt the property. So we know we have dogs and stuff like that. But one of the things that I did before is just like, I stopped and I was like, what's your name? talked to his son, found out like where they were from, what their town is, just like the basic things that humanized it so that it didn't actually become a place where it was like conflict. It wasn't me, the owner of the property coming and saying, hey, you can't hunt my property. It was me being like, here's me, here's my life, what's your life? And so what's interesting is we were incredibly different people. Um, and yet we were able to kind of unify in this very simple kind of way about talking about the land, the weather, deer, things like that. <laughs> And that actually allowed us to go into a really different place. And over the, and, it, and again, this is the thing, Michael, because now I know him, like over the year, we've been able to have much more intense conversations about other things because we've set the basis. Um, one of the things that I think I talk about in the book is like, don't think a conversation is an hour. Um, think of a conversation as a long, long, long arc. And so I think about my relationship with this guy as like something that's been a conversation that's happened over a year, not that happened in the 20 minutes when I first talked to him. And we can talk about things like vaccines or no vaccines and things like that now that we couldn't have um, if we hadn't kind of set the kind of groundwork for the conversation. So it, part of this commitment is basically saying it's not going to happen in 20 minutes. It, it might happen in 20 hours, you know, it's like, and that, and that's okay. Um, so that's one of the things that I think really helps us is getting to understand the nuance of people first, before we start to kind of change the nuance of people, which is often what we want to do right off the bat. So yeah, not, not, not leading the conversation off with conflict totally, <laughs> would be a good start. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, maybe I should know you before I try to change you. And it's like, and, and you know, and it's like, maybe I'll understand why I shouldn't even want to change you. So, yeah. My my listeners have heard this from me several, several times over the course of the nearly 100 episodes now, but I'm fascinated by how someone gets to that point of that that little self-reflection moment where you say, I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to go in and say, like, what are you doing on my land in your instance? Right, right. But I'm going to just ask the question of who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? What are you out here doing today? What are you hoping for? Like. How, Fred, does someone get to, I'll ask you, that moment of self-reflection where we stop, we pause, and we consider, like, our goals for the conversation? It's so interesting. Michael, I think about this all the time. And um, I've been writing a lot recently about kind of triggering and kind of recognizing when you've been triggered and whether that, when that's actually about the person and whether that's actually just something about you yeah. or something that's happened. And um, I think I write a lot in the book. And in my and in my life, even in the work that I do, um, we deliberately build a lot of pause into the conversation. And that's not like for like just like well-being or whatever. It's actually literally because we think that pause gives people a moment to kind of stop and reflect before they jump into whatever they say. So if we're doing working conversations with groups of people where it's actually people building important ideas, we'll ask them to pause and we'll ask, actually ask them to write their things down first before they speak, because some people can communicate in other ways. But I have a very specific moment in my life where I suddenly was like, here's the value of pause. And it's funny, like I've worked with Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General, who actually builds like moments of pause into his conversations before he starts. And there's a bunch of different thinking about why pause matters. 
in my life, can I, I'll just tell you this very funny, weird, dumb story. Yeah, please do. When I first, when I first moved to New York, um, I was at my apartment alone. Like my dog, my dog wasn't there. My husband hadn't come yet. And like the movers had had this, like it was exhausting. I'd come from California. Like New York was so different. It was just like so different. And I'm like just about to relax after this strenuous day. And somebody starts pounding at the door of my apartment. And I go and open the door and it's my downstairs neighbor. And she is just screaming screaming at me she's just like she's like you violated every building regulation like it's like you've had the movers use my elevator i was like just screaming 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 and i was sitting there being like i'm gonna scream at this woman right back because i don't want her to think that i'm just some wuss from california who's like oh it's all fine (laughs) and um i in that moment i took a pause like i just took a deep breath in because i was getting ready to just like lash out at her and i suddenly was like wait a second (laughs) <laughs> it's like, and so I stopped and I said to her, literally, I was like, you know, we're neighbors. Is this the first conversation we want to be having? And then she paused and took a breath and she was like, no, it isn't. And it literally changed our relationship. It changed the way, it, like, I mean, for years we were like the best neighbors, but it, I think it was this moment of me pausing and being like, I could do this. And then being like, wait, that's the wrong thing to do. And then asking her, like being like, is this the conversation that you want to have? Because it's not the conversation I want to have. And have her be like, oh yeah, no, I can think about why not. So honestly, I do think just stopping every once in a while and asking yourself, is this what you want to be saying? Is this conversation? And also asking the person as well. It's so simple, but it's kind of the most powerful tool that we have at our disposal. You know, I love that answer because you asked a question, Fred. <laughs> you just, you asked a question. And, and to go back to something you said earlier. It's great. It's exactly right. Yeah. It's the, it's that follow-up question. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> it, you ask the question of yourself and then you ask the question of her. And I, I love that. And, and it goes back to something you said earlier that there is this arc of conversation. This was not going to be the first interaction you had with this person. So is this just this moment? Or am I considering the long game of this? And that's an interesting thing, Michael, because if you pause and think about that in a long, a longer frame, maybe that's another aspect that helps us lead into having more creative, more productive conversations is the idea that like, you really never know if that this is going to be a longer conversation or a shorter one. Like it's like every person you meet could be a longer conversation. And so maybe it's about treating everyone as though, you're in a, you're in it for a longer conversation and just seeing where that gets you. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I love that perspective. So you mentioned it right there. Um, creative conversation. Yeah. Now, when I first heard, saw it in the book and I was considering it, it seemed to be like, okay, it's, you know, making conversation in ways that are different, which is kind of true, but you're talking about actually, cre- am I, am I correct? You're talking about actually creating conversation is the, it is the creative nature of making conversation. Am I correct in that uh, assertion? That's right. Okay. Yeah. And, and the, the work I do um, now is actually is, is what I call designing dialogue or, or creative conversation. Um, and the work that we think about and is, is actually quite literally building frames and structures for harder conversations to happen in ways that actually feel less hard and more fun. Um, and so we built a interesting, a lot of people who work with us 
call our our conversations, the creative conversations, um, games, in essence, because they actually have rules um, and there's usually an outcome and they're fun. And so at some point we're like, wait, but they're not games. And we're like, well, if that's how people talk about it, then it's fine. We'll call them games. But the, but yeah, so we create structures that help make tough conversations easier and often more fun. Within a game, and you mentioned the rules there, um, there, right. there are rules that you abide by to to play the game, quote unquote, fairly. <laughs> yep. Do you find it ever difficult for people to abide by the rules themselves, but expect others abide by the rules in 100%? This is, <laughs> well, I mean, this, this is a great example. I mean, so when we're doing this, when I'm doing this with people, um, there are some things we do. Like we actually, I set forward, I'm like, there's going to be rules and you need to commit. So it's the same thing. We always ask for commitment up front um, in, in the collective. And and I'm always really quite explicit that it's like, if you can't, it is fine to not be here, but you have to commit, you know? And, it's, and I think, again, the premise is like, we're talking about an hour. We're not talking about three days, you know, or something or something like that. But um, honestly, the rules are, if they're designed well, if they're the right kind of creative, should feel like they actually... Um, they make everything a bit more fun. So one of the kind of conversation structures we have is this thing called um, intentions where we'll actually have people kind of move back and forth across the room based on where they kind of sit in certain kind of spectrums. And so what's really interesting is it's like a moving game. It's like people can see change in the room. We're talking about like when, how you can know when change has happened. Um, you think differently with your body, you know, sometimes. So the, sometimes I've been in, in conversations where somebody walks to the side of the room and you ask them why they're there. And they're like, I don't know. My body just took me there. And then you talk, you talk about that. But it's uh, um, things like that that actually kind of make it sort of fun. And what's interesting, Michael, is that while that's like something that I designed that I, we do with like big groups of people, there's principles in it that can actually be used even if it's just you. Um, so you can go for a walk with someone when you have a conversation, which changes the dynamic dramatically. If you're kind of going someplace with somebody else, like literally, you know, it's like you can, you can have hard conversations while you're playing a game. You can have conversations while you're fishing. I mean, all these different things that allow us to kind of rebuild the structures. Like conversations do not have to be you and I sitting in a room face to face at a table. Like, it's like, that's just not the way life is lit. Um, if, let, let them be free and break out and and the more you do them in more different kinds of contexts the the more you'll find creative ways to do it i think so a huge part of conversation fred is listening listening mm-hmm. to the other side it's the extraction not just the exertion of what we say and you write that the whole modern era has been a long and unrelenting attack on listening and you also you also go after the phrase active listening, which I hate. I call it performative oh. listening, um, yeah, totally. <laughs> where you write, in spirit, it's well-meaning, but in practice, it sucks. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to ask a two-part question here. So let's start with the first part, the unrelenting attack on listening. I assume, I can assume I know what you mean by that, but what do you mean by that? I mean, I, I think that it's like... We don't take pride in listening. We're, we're, it's like, it's sort of, it's a, it's a, um, it's, it's a thing that we're sort of told to do. So what I, what I think is really fascinating from an early kind of early, early childhood, um, 
listening is kind of almost punitive in the in the way we talk about it. And you'll often hear um, leaders say like, "Oh, I'm going to give everybody a good listening to," or or you often talk to people like um, I, I was talking to somebody who runs ran a political campaign for um, a mayor, and they were like, "Well, at some point, he had no choice but to listen." You know, so it's just like so. There's this way that we speak about listening that is just like it's a downer. Like you're like, oh wow, why I don't want to listen. You know, it's like it's it, it. And there's also I think some misunderstandings of listening, like that active listening actually helps kind of establish, which is like, oh, I'm supposed to be quiet. I'm supposed to be like affirmative. Whereas like a good listener, and this again relates back to your work, is like. Is, is somebody who asks great questions. You know, a good listener is going to be like, let me find the things that are curious and let me tell you what I'm curious about. Um, and that's why I think active listening is such a problem for us is because it literally, it, it teaches you not to do that. It listen, it's, it's basically you become the listener for the speaker as opposed to an embodying listening as something that's like creative and joyful and something that you'll learn from. And I think that's really what I kind of try to write about in the book is how can we refine the joy of listening? Um, and also, Michael, interestingly, I'm working on a new book and the whole book is on listening, actually, because it just feels like it became such a kind of critical component. And and I was like, we can do more on this topic. So I'm really, I'm, it's been really fun to work on. Well, hopefully I can have you back after that one gets released and <laughs> we can talk about listening more in depth. I'm curious, yeah. Does good does a good listener have to first listen to themselves? A little bit of a leading question there, but is it required that you know and understand and listen to yourself first? Yeah, I think Michael, that's it's a I don't know if it's a leading question, but it's a great question in the sense that it's like listen, we're humans, right? And so as humans, we are we're judging things. Um, and so one of the things that often happens in listening is you are sort of like, well, I need to defer judgment. Um, I'm actually fine if, Michael, you're listening and you're judging whether or not what I'm saying feels right or wrong to you or whatever. Um, that doesn't mean, again, that you're going to jump in and be like, that's wrong. It's, But it's just more like, it's like, it's important to pay attention to how you're feeling about things and then be like, but I'm still willing to listen or still be here. Um, one of the things I think that really hurts conversation is us feeling like um we can't be human and we can't we can't we can't judge um one of the practices that i looked at when i was writing the book was um i went to a quaker meetings um quaker meetings are they're the religious um, uh, um gathering for quakers and what's interesting about quaker meetings is the first half usually of a quaker meeting is in silence um, because what what the first part of the meeting is like, listen to yourself, listen to what's going on in your mind, listen to what's happening, and is something coming forward that you feel like you need to say? And then the second part is if you feel like moved to say something because you've listened to yourself and there's something there. What they what they ask in those meetings is that the crowd, the people who are listening to the person who's standing up, and I think they call it testifying, um, is that they ask the crowd to witness, and the witness's job is to feel. Does this feel right? Do I agree with this? And so you don't just say like, yes, I'm there for you. You're like, well, I'm not sure. And I love the idea that it's like, it brings judgment into this, which is part of the listening practice. Um, and and so I think, I think one of the things, again, one of the things that makes listening really hard and is that we, we don't, we think we're not supposed to do things like judge. We think we're not supposed, we're not supposed to be um, interrupting. 
Um, these are all things that are actually okay to do if you're kind of like listening in a creative way, listening for um, the stuff that kind of sparks joy or, or, or makes a conversation fun or lets you learn about somebody in a different way. So what in your experience is a good way then to, to listen, to, to consider that question, does this actually resonate with me? Do I agree with this? Bring that judgment and deliver it to the other person in a way where it can be the the impetus to a creative conversation. How do how do we how do we bring that to another person in a way that fosters healthy dialogue? Yeah, and one of the things I'm really interested in in the ways that I think this can help in a in a healthy conversation, but also in a kind of creative conversation, is you as a listener thinking about the kinds of questions you ask and often framing those questions in unusual ways, you know? So um, uh, one of the things that I'm really interested in is like asking questions that get at topics that may allow you to kind of get people to tell interesting or different kind of stories than otherwise. So I think I write about this, but one of my favorite like things is like, if you're talking to somebody who's, let's say really rich. And so you feel like there's really different than you, like, there's something interesting about kind of asking a question, like talk about the last time you felt poor, you know, which is like, which gives an interesting frame to the question, gives somebody something interesting to talk about and also makes the person who's speaking a little bit of a hero. And so one of the things I'm really interested in is like, and I think this is related to the, again, your, your work and the podcast is like framing up questions so that they really are giving the person who you're listening to something to work off of, as opposed to just kind of like, you know, how, like how do you feel about money is like you know whatever but it's like like is, is not a thing but but asking somebody like it's like when was the last time you felt poor and what was what made that give somebody a frame to kind of tell a more interesting story um and so i think a lot about how to kind of create the right frames for people to kind of give us more compelling stories than just kind of like our everyday kinds of questions or non-questions I so love that, Fred. <laughs> and it reminds me of a part in the book where you talked about that can actually be a way for us to get on the same page in terms of how we define, like how we actually define words like, what does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to be empathetic? What does it mean to be uh, to be a moral person? If we don't understand that, we're disagreeing, not using the same definition, Right. It's a, and that's, that's honestly one of the biggest problems I've, I've seen is that often we'll go in assuming that we, we think rich or poor or well or not well or um, empathic or not or inspiring or not, like are agreed upon. And those are not necessarily agreed upon terms. And so one of the things that, that we always do is kind of either we'll ask people if we're kind of working on a problem or a project together to kind of go around and say, like, for instance, if we're doing something in the space of education, um, like when, or learning, we'll sort of be like, let's go around the room and talk about the last time we learned something. And so you kind of, from that kind of begin to build a glossary of what people mean by something. And so it's worthwhile on a conversation, especially if it's topic based to kind of take the moment or take like, you know, 10 minutes in the front to be like, let's get common definitions in place. And you can do that literally by having people tell stories about what they think about this idea, as opposed to being like, define learning for me, which is that's, that's, again, Michael, that's a horrible question, define learning. But when was the last time you learned is like, is a great question, because you can absolutely kind of like, you can think about that in, in the way. So 
it's so important for us to kind of make sure that when we're speaking, we're using co common language, which is often also why we talk about using simple language as much as possible, um, just so that you can make sure that people do understand. So, Gosh, that's so hard, Fred. Isn't it? I mean, it, because of, of what I want to talk about in the last few minutes that we have here, we rush into conversation seemingly to change someone's mind so often. And right. you're asking us to stop, pull back, consider that and not change someone's mind <laughs> and be willing to have our own mind changed. Like you're you're asking us to completely flip the conversation when you bring that to people. How is that received? Um, well, uh, it's very funny. So there have been people that I've worked with who are like, cause you know, the title of the book is making conversation where people are like, really? Like I, I have to work on so much other stuff. I also have to work on making conversation. <laughs> and so one of the, one of the things that I really try to do, and it's why I'm like, been, I've been delighted with the idea that people talking about, talk about some of the structures as games, um, is that, um, is that when you do it and you sort of are like, it's going to be more fun. It's going to be better. It's going to whatever. Um, and then people try. I mean, often when people try it, then they realize, oh, it is more fun. We can have harder conversations. We can do things that we couldn't do otherwise. I think it actually really shifts. But I think it's also, it's a bit of a, um, you you have to kind of do it and sort of see that it, that it works before it, it actually kind of plays out. Um, that said, I do think that there's a bunch of people who, when you stop for a moment and say, what's more important? like in our lives than making conversation, then um, you get people who do reflect and sort of say, well, really, because in my mind, this is our work as humans is to, to discover more about the people that we're around. Um, and so I think I find less skepticism than I would think. I also think, Michael, I find less skepticism now than two years ago. You know, it's just like, I, th I think everybody feels like they need new tools and new ways to have this. I think it goes back to the conversation fatigue. And so there's an openness to saying, yeah, let's try a different way that is really different today than it was, again, even even two years ago of doing this work. So, Fred, I'm fascinated that you you believe that the that an elemental component, I believe is what you write, or, or the, the baseline foundational core of conversation is change. I'm trying to think through the question that I have rolling through my mind. Mm -hmm. um, that it is the goal of creative conversation, that, that serious, hard conversations are just, if, if we don't think of them in the, in the concept of, of what is changing, that they're just serious, hard conversations, I believe is what you write. Right. That goes against so much of what, even in, you know, I, I have this show, I, I do this work, and I even struggle with that time and time and time again to not want to immediately force someone to change, but to right. hold that space to be willing to change. I, I guess the question, Fred, is like, how, how do we get there? I know that's a huge question, and it, it's something that I've explored so much there, but from your perspective, how do we invite change into a conversation while not trying to force it? Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things we do, Michael, is start to get really good at noticing change when it happens. And by change, I mean small change. And so I think the person who um, 
who I think best articulated this was the woman who I talked about earlier, who had this kind of religious, who's very religious, but had this kind of sex positive book group. Um, and she said after the very first meeting where they read Fifty Shades of Grey, and she was like, it was so uncomfortable. Like, I mean, we were sitting there talking and we're like, do people really do this? Like, like they, 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 she was like, we felt so weird in the conversation. And then she was like, then we all went home and we did know that however uncomfortable we felt, that something had changed in us. And that it was literally that they could say things like, I don't know what, like sadomasochism or belt or whatever, like in, in it, that they couldn't have said before. And she was like, and that's what made us come back for more is just that it's like, if we, we knew we could change this, this little bit that we could continue to do it. And so people who are good and getting good at being like, wait, there's been a little change here. Like, it's like, we might not agree, but we kind of can see a commonality or um, those are the things that become really important. And again, if we think about the long conversation, these might be many, 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 many little changes. I, I remind you with, with that group, they ended up becoming sex positive activists working on like ending prostitution and like, like, like for the benefit of, of, of people who were enslaved. And, um, they made that change, but they made that change over like a long, long, long time. Um, it's why one of the things I love about things like that is tools for you to have a conversation. What I love about something like a book club, for instance, is that it means that you can talk about topics in a in an abstract way or with a kind of creative context. And you don't mean that you have to kind of be like, let's talk about us. You're talking about something else. And so it's one of the kind of tools that we have at our disposal. Um, I... And I go back to this idea of like, take a conversation out of a room, put it anywhere else that you can, like go for a long walk with somebody, do do, do those things. Um, because I do feel like you begin to notice these changes when you're kind of like attentive in different ways. Um, uh, I'll often talk about, in fact, I do this quite a bit when I do interviews of clients, um, I'll do them over the phone. And part of that's just because, um, you get a kind of more openness from people when you're kind of just talking on the phone than if you're kind of talking in Zoom or face-to-face. It's just like, it becomes a little bit more. Um, and so you can actually notice and hear change in them, in their voices in different ways. So getting to practice the senses that that notice when things are, are shifting. One last thing I'll say is that in our group work, when we do big, big um, conversations, we'll often have somebody in the room who's there, whose job is just to watch for change like just to watch when the tenor of a conversation changes or when something seems like it's kind of, there's been a, a breakthrough, even if it's a small breakthrough. Um, and so it it pays if you're having a group conversation, a big conversation to have somebody be there to be like attentive to that because otherwise you can miss it. Um, and that's, that's a shame to, to miss a possible change when it happens. Well, speaking of tools in our toolkit, you have given us and me one of those tools, which is, I want to make sure we're defining change the same way. So how do you define change? What does it, what does it mean to you, Fred? Yeah. And I think about it a lot as kind of like a feeling when you can actually sort of, when you can start to feel that there's a shift in a collective feeling or, or the idea that groups of people or people who are in conversations might be feeling together, even if, again, they might be disagreeing, but they might be, they might be feeling the, the thing. And so, um, I, uh, Again, I'm going to go back to this woman who had this 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 um, book group, but she had this great story about going to see um, 
the Mormon musical. I can't remember what it's called. The, the, um, the, the, about Mormons, the, the Trey Parker uh, musical oh, yeah. and singing it in Salt Lake city and seeing it with a, a group of people with many of whom were in fact Mormon. And she was saying that one of the things that was really interesting is that at the end of that show, everybody had just laughed regardless. And you could feel that there had been a change because it just like there was a moment of levity about something that's quite serious in the context of, of her community. And she was like, what would have happened if we had actually all noticed that change together and done something right then? We didn't, it was, you know, theater and everybody dispersed, but it's like, it's things like that where suddenly like you might feel like, Oh, here's an opening. Things have opened in a little way. And it's like, do we want to seize that or at least remember that it happened or make sure that we've noticed that it happened and what does that let us do? Um, And so I often look for moments of collective feeling, not necessarily people sort of saying, Oh, I agree hundred percent with that, but more like the sense that people are at least comprehending that they're what's in common with each other and what's not. Um, So it's, it's a feeling based, um, activity almost more than it's than it's a knowledge-based activity is it the book of mormon is that is that the, the yeah, one yeah Sorry. yeah <laughs> so fred i love i love that because you and i define change in a very very similar way because i think so many people define change as i've got to get agreement out of this person where it's totally. it's more i love that you put it in the the phrase uh, you, you use the phrase it's an opening it's a feeling of an opening that allows us to go and co-create something different. Totally. That's beautiful. I love that concept of it's an opening to a feeling rather than, okay, all of a sudden you change your mind and you agree with me or I agree with you. That's, that seems dangerous, doesn't it? It does. And it also, um, it's like one feels transactional and one yeah. feels kind of rewarding you know and it's like and what's really weird is like you know i'm i'm in no way i i I was raised and am an atheist but there's when when i do sometimes feel more spiritual it's when you start to kind of accept the fact that it's like that opening is the best you can hope for you know in 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 life is that there's like there's a new path or there's at least the hint of a new way forward i think so um and it's it's kind of remarkable to to see and see it happen I mean, I feel one thing that I just want to say, because I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, especially in the context of having conversations in podcasts, is like the other thing that's hard for us is we live under a myth that people can't talk to each other when, in fact, we have plenty of examples that we start to look for where we can see people can, that people who are different do, in fact, do that. And so the worst thing for us is to kind of walk out saying, oh, no one talks to each other, but rather being like, wait, it happens every day. Let's understand how it does. And let's see if we can make more situations like that. And so I think that's, that's our work is just to, to show how it, how it's done and where it's done and that it is done. Is there a moment or time in your life where you have experienced that kind of change? Um, I I know you've referenced the, the book club several times here, but I'm curious for you, uh, Fred, is there anything that you can point to in your own life where that that openness to the feeling of change, to creating something new down the road in that arc of con- ongoing conversation, is there anything that comes to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it happened. I mean, it's happened a lot in my life, but it's it happened a lot actually while I was writing the book. You know, it's like which is interesting in the sense that I think I said this that my initial thought was I'm going to go to spectacular examples of conversations. So I'm going to go and spend time with the Dalai Lama, which I did do, you know, and sort of see what, you know, whatever. And I'm going to write about that. I'm going to write about kind of protest marches and stuff like that. And one of the things that 
going back to the moment of somebody like being like, you need to talk to this person is that suddenly there was a moment when I was like, I'm more interested in everyday people. And that was a change. Like that was literally a shift of being like, wait a second, spectacular people who are doing this, like in the limelight or whatever, that's one thing, but like a school for severe addicts where, um, cause I, I, that's, I, I write about that in the book, um, where the kids basically are staying and committing to each other in significant ways. That's fascinating knowing about that. And so that change, um, was gradual, but it, and it was little by little being like, wait, I can learn less from these big examples and learn a lot more from these, these kind of everyday examples, very significant change for me in, in my work and the way I think about this. Um, another example is, going into situations where I thought that I was doing research. And so going in with the mindset of like, I'm going to learn about these people. So I talk about this where we went on pilgrimage because I was interested in how pilgrims, people who go on pilgrimage start to relate and bond with each other. And um, over the course of going on pilgrimage, which is a very, very, very long walk by the end of it, I was like, wait a second, I'm not interviewing pilgrims. I'm a pilgrim. Like I just walked, you know, all this way. It's like I've changed. And so um, there's these moments where suddenly you're like, that was actually, sorry, Michael, that's probably the biggest realization for me in the book is that I was like, oh, wait, I need this. Like, it's yeah. like I needed to be um, taken through this at the very, sorry. And this is the last no, thing I'll, I promise. Yeah. Um, well, I'd finished the book and this young woman had reached out who had gone to this school for severely addicted youth that I talked to. And she was like, we do an interview for me. And I'm like, the book's over, but yes, I'll do an interview if you want. So I did this interview and at the end of the conversation, she was like, well, can I ask you a question? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, well, so as you went through doing all this research for the book and writing the book, do you feel like you're cured? And I was like, well, I didn't think I was sick. And then I was just like, oh, wait, she's totally right. Like, because in fact, learning all this positive ways of thinking about conversation did in fact cure me from being in the mindset of being like, we can't do this to being like, we absolutely can. And so that was this incredibly moment where it's like, she put it into a phrase where I'm like, I don't relate to that at all. And then I was like, oh, but it's totally right. Um, And so another example, I think of, kind of a significant change for me, my mindset. Fred, I, w- I actually, uh, I-, I get that feeling that we've had one of those moments right here. Um, you mentioned you're an atheist. I'm a lifelong Christian. And you were talking about that feeling of openness during conversation, feeling as close to a spiritual connection as, as you could get. I resonate with that. Of course I do. Oh. And here we are talking about how to make conversation better through you've written your book, I'm doing this podcast, you know, we're, we're coming together to create, I think something that can be of value. So it's happening right now. <laughs> it, it is. And I, I love that, Michael. And it just it, a little sideline, like um, just a little funny, the, the new book I'm writing on listening, a lot of what I'm looking at is really extreme spiritual practices, because in fact, you learn so much. It. So it's yeah. like, it's really interesting how much actually doing the research of the book has like opened me up in ways that I don't think were possible. So I think we are, we're actually having a continuation of a conversation that we've both been having for a long time. With Absolutely. Ourselves. So Absolutely. <laughs> well, Fred, uh, last question for you here. What is a question that you wish you were asked more? Oh God. <laughs> Um, oh, Michael, man, that's a really hard one. What's a question <laughs> that I wish was asked more? Um, 
boy. You know, it's funny because I feel like what I don't get a lot of is like that I actually nobody, which is like, what's the last time you really felt like you failed in a conversation? Like, which is like, which is something that I never, and by the way, don't ask me that, Michael, because I, it's not going to come oh, to man, mind. I was going to ask it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so funny because it's like, I feel like that's something that I'm curious to think about, which is like, when now do I feel like I'm still seeing myself fail in conversations and, and how does that work? And, um, and I think that's a, it's an important data point for us that I feel like, um, would be interesting to to explore that people don't ask and michael and i'm really sorry i can't think of it i don't know offhand but it's like but it is something that's really interesting it's okay i can ask a different question along the same lines uh as a follow-up to that what is the value of of that failure then what would be the value of going back and realizing how that conversation did not go how i wanted it to Uh, we can assume maybe what you might say but i want to hear from you like What's the value of understanding that? I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I actually will give you an example of a, of a place where a conversation failed recently um, and, and kind of, and the value that it played for us. So, so we have this game that we call group wise, which is about groups getting to understand how collective decision-making is happening and how much nuance there is and how much kind of like uh, politics and jockeying happens in, in that thing. And um, part of that game means that at some point, like, I end up playing a little bit of a villain. Like I sort of like start to kind of give people false information and it's a way to kind of get people through it or whoever's playing the role does that. So I did this this summer at with a big group of people. It was at Aspen and um, started to kind of put this, this wrong information into the thing. And people really turned on me. Like people were like, wait a second, you're lying to us. I mean, it was all in good spirit, but it was this kind of like, and what I didn't realize is that in doing this, I didn't realize how much that was going to be painful for me to suddenly become an unreliable narrator when, when that's something that I really value. And so what I learned was that was too much. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And we had to figure out a different mechanism to do it. Um, And it was, it was a failure. It was, I mean, it worked, it worked for them. It didn't work for me because I was like, I feel really bad about this and it was really hard to to do it. And so um, it's, it was a great example where it's like, we then had to re redesign the, the construct so that it, it could actually be something that I could do and feel okay about. Um, so it's interesting where it's like, as with anything, a, a failure is a place where you're like, well, what did I learn? And I learned about the limits of how far I could go in something and how much I would, I could feel like an audience hated me, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of so, so it's as you'd expect. It's it's about learning and, and adapting from there. So see, we got there. We the follow up question there. got you there, right? <laughs> <laughs> you did. I, I, I applaud you because I was like, I can't do this, and I was like, well, I can't that's do this. so funny, <laughs> Fred. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful book. Like I said, I took so many notes. Um, thank you for the work that you do. I just want to affirm that in you. It is it is so necessary, so needed, and and I appreciate your time today, sir. No, and thanks. And congratulations on being close to 100 podcasts. Thank you. That's a big thing. Keep on doing it. Many thanks to Fred Dust for sharing his story on the show. Please do me and Fred a huge favor and share this episode with someone you know who might find some value in listening to our conversation. Share this episode with your network. Help us spread the good word about the importance of asking more questions. And if you like the conversations with the amazing guests that I have here on this show with folks like Fred Dust, please subscribe so that you never miss when a new episode drops. 
If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can always email me at michael at thefollowupquestion.com or you can go to my website, michaelashford.com and reach out there. I'll catch you on the next episode of The Follow-Up Question. And until then, keep asking questions.